You can be seated. God bless you, man. Great singing this morning. If you were here at Kirby 55 years ago, in October, November, we celebrate our 55th year in ministry, you sang out of probably Brother Varney's favorite book, The Heavenly Highway Hymns. How many of you remember The Heavenly Highway Hymns? Yes, we have a few golden oldies still here. And, uh, and it's awesome. My mama uh, and papa would sing out of this at the Free Will Baptist Church down in the hills of Kentucky. And I know a lot of these songs well. And uh, a matter of fact, after that kind, because we all kind of have our favorite song, don't we? You know? And, and then we just kind of, when we get our favorite song and then somebody else starts singing a new song that replaces our favorite song, we get a little ticked off, don't we? Amen. You might as well amen. They quit singing this song and start singing a new song, and man, the church has gone liberal. You know what I'm talking about? You know? Time to, time to shake it all up, you know? Well, it wasn't too long after that that this hymn book kind of faded away, and how many of you remember this one? Oh, yes. This is the songbook I was raised on right here. Psalm number 34, Claude Butler would always want to sing Psalm number, or song number 34. And uh, we always like the bass songs, you know, the songs that has the bass lines. I can tell you the time, I can tell you the place where the Lord saved me by his wonderful grace. I know not the how and I cannot tell you why, but I'll tell you all about it in the by and by. People, that's good stuff. And, uh, and we were Baptists, but if I'm not mistaken, this is a church got hymn book, you know, and, uh, and they got it, man. We loved it. It's good stuff, you know. There's, uh, uh, there was other songs, you know, they, there was, uh, we, we always had those kind of slow mopey songs, you know, those death songs, I always called them, growing up, just inside the Eastern Gate, you know what I mean? I'll meet you in the morning by the bright riverside where loved ones have been taken away. That'll get you pumped up on Sunday morning. <laughs> I mean, the truth is good. But it's, it's, just, it's just great stuff, man. I can, I can remember some of the great songs there. Well, anyway, it, it kind of went from that hymnal then to this hymnal. You know, it's kind of uh, back in the 60s kind of thing for a Baptist hymnal. Then it went to uh, right after I got here, or right before I got here, they upgraded to the bigger hymnal, you know, that had a few praise and worship songs in them. Some of these golden oldies, um, um, golden harps are sounding, you know, crown him. I know my Redeemer lives, he lives. Uh, majesty, I will call upon the Lord. Remember that one? I will call upon the Lord. Remember that song? Oh, yeah, give it to me, baby. You know? And, uh, man, that's good stuff. You know, we don't say, how, it, when's the last time we sang, I will call upon the Lord? Doggone it, don't you ever call upon the Lord anymore, you know? Man. Well, look, here's what I want to do. I want to take a little trip down memory lane. And you're going to participate here, all right? And it's going to be a little awkward, but it's going to be a lot of fun. If you know the song we're going to sing, all right? And since we're singing gold, golden oldies out of the archives, we went to the biggest archive guy we know. That's Ed Caldwell. 
I could say anything about him right now, I want to. And you'd clap an amen, you know, it's, it's good. But here's what I want you to do. Harv's going to lead us in a song. And if you know the song, I just want you to stand and sing it. And, and then when we're done with that, just sit back down, clap, whatever you want to do, if you know the song. Now, if you don't know the song, don't be embarrassed, you know. And it may be you know it's like Christmas carols. You only know the first verse. You don't know anything else. That's okay. It qualifies. All right. This song is from the year 1792. 1792. All hail the power of Jesus' name. If you know it, stand and sing. If you don't know it, that's all right. Here we go. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate. song a song that was 217 years old there's no other genre of music that does this by the way you know the golden oldie stations only go back to the 40s or the 30s you know we went back 217 years but the truth of that still stands doesn't it and it still resonates within our heart because there's a deep profound truth to the songs that we sing well, let's see if you know this one. Written in, uh, let's see, 1873. 1873. All right, they're going to flash it on the board. When you know it, just stand up and start singing. Here you go. My heavenly stand it's great the other 58 we're going where are we going you know where are we we traveling to well seven years later was a great song it's kind of one of my favorites still it's kind of one of my favorite today when you when you know it just stand and sing by the way the crowd's getting a little thinner now after all hell the power of Jesus name but if you know this one stand up and sing well some glad morning when this life is over
the Grand Ole Opry at Ryman Auditorium. You know, some of you are going, dude, this Baptist church here, yeah. Do we have the one more, the last one? All right, the last one, and, uh, and this is a golden only 1939. Uh, if you know it, stand it. By the way, some of you haven't stood at all, and that's okay. If you know it, stand and sing. I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory How he gave his life on Calvary To save a wretch like me I heard about his glory Of his precious songs are like for me they're comfort food they're great food but they bring back wonderful memories of my of my Christian heritage and my my Christian experience and my journey of faith I can remember Fred Thompson singing the bass to I'll fly away or I'll meet you in the morning or Psalm hymn number 34 um, um, about uh, um, my mind just went blank, but the one I just mentioned earlier. And it's just wonderful, wonderful expressions. God's people have always been about music. The Jewish people, especially so. They sang in great times and in not so great times. They sang when they were in bondage in Egypt. And boy, did they sing when they crossed the Red Sea and were free people on the other side. David danced and sang with song and tambourine and drums and the whole percussion side of music as he danced before the Ark of the Covenant when they brought it back to Jerusalem. And yet they wept as there was no song and they had to sing a song in a strange land as they were carried away into Babylonian exile. Whether in bondage or free, they had always been a song for the people of God to sing. The Book of Songs is a collection of songs compiled probably over a thousand years. There were about eight key authors and quite a few anonymous writers. We associate David with them, but Moses and Aphos and sons of Korah, a fellow by the name of Heman, and, 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 a, and a few other folks wrote some of the Psalms. It, the Psalms were kind of in individual sections or books. The first book goes from Psalm 1 to Psalm 42. The second book goes from Psalm 42 to Psalm 72. The third book goes from Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. 
And all of that was basically kind of done when David was king and, and Israel was a world power. And then there's the second half of the book. Israel's in trouble. Life's a mess. There is no king on the throne because there is no throne in Jerusalem. Israel is now a captured nation. Israel is, is in, in big trouble. It, the best and the brightest have been carried away into Babylon and the rest have been scattered abroad, part of the dispersia. And songs in book four kind of include psalms from 90 to 106 in the final book. Psalm 107 to Psalm 150. And we don't know who the guy was, the general editor, who put all of the Psalms together. We believe that they're all inspired. And it's not a hymn book like what we sing out of, or it's not the, the new hymn book, you know, the screen that we sing from. But more it's a portrait, it's a picture, it's a snapshot of God's interaction with his people and his people's interaction with God. Turn to Psalm 3. This is a song that every Jew from the post-exilic period on would have sung. According to the Talmud, a, a, a gathering of oral traditions. Even though it's in the front, it, it, and it's in the front because David wrote it, but they started singing it during a time of exile. This is probably a song, song Jesus would have sung because it's a morning song. They had certain songs that they would sing every morning as they would begin their day. They didn't have iTunes or a CD player to pop in. And the Jewish people were very oral. They were very verbal. They were very much musical. And they would just as soon sing a story as tell a story. And this is one of the songs that Jesus certainly would have sung when he was on this earth. It's a story of David, and David's not in a good place. It's a story of David who was king, but whose life was a total mess when he wrote this song. Now, I understand we live in a culture, we live in a time where if you got problems, brother, you don't talk about those problems to anybody, right? That's kind of like the culture because men, we can't appear weak. Ladies, you can't appear vulnerable. And goodness knows if you tell it to somebody, gossip so permeates our culture, it's going to be on Facebook before you get home. And so we've kind of got this isolation it built in and ingrained in our culture that, man, if you've got a problem, you suffer alone. And David not only talked about his trouble, by the way, the, the title of the message today is a song of hope for messed up people in a messed up world. And a lot of you look messed up. David not only talked about it, he sang about it. What was going on in David's life is he had just had an affair with Bathsheba. And I know in our culture, we think a fair one-night stand. Oh, no, baby. This man, after God's own heart, had an 18-month affair. Seductive, seditious, deliberate, intentional. Knowing that he was going against the very commands of God, he did it anyway. 
violated God's principle, knowing that he would grieve the heart of God. He did it anyway. There were serious repercussions. It brought complete disarray to his family. Absalom, who was probably the most charismatic and most outgoing, the best warrior, the best thinker of the sons that he had at that time, what was very charismatic, he was kind of gathering a younger group around him who was definitely unhappy with what was going on in the kingdom. David wanted to kind of make legal, make right this whole adulterous relationship with Bathsheba so he concocted a scheme to have Uriah killed, that's Bathsheba's husband, killed at the front line because he was the captain. He would send all of them to the front line and, and then he commanded the troops to pull back. So basically it was Uriah fighting off thousands and he died. David is now not only guilty of adultery, he's guilty of murder. Politically, Israel begins to spiral out of control. And from this point forward, Israel is no longer in the prominent position that it was before the sin of David. In my first pastorate, I ne- it, never cro- dawned, it never crossed my mind because I was young, I was stupid, I was naive that Christians would dare act in an unchristian way. I thought pastoring would be an easy job because the same book I read is the same book you'd read if you'd only choose to read it. And then when you read it, you're supposed to do it, right? And I'll never forget sitting in a lady's home. She was a Sunday school teacher having an affair with the Sunday school superintendent. I'm just out of Bible college. Now, I don't know if you know this about Bible college or not, but they never covered this when I went to Bible college. And she looked at me and she said, well, David and Bathsheba had that affair and David turned out all right. No, he didn't. Every morning, every Jew, when they sang this song, and it starts off that many are around me knew that it was referring to this sin with Bathsheba, the death of Uriah. And then what was going on in David's own home was just turmoil. It was just functionality at its highest level. Amen, one of the half-brothers of Absalom, remember the, you know, kind of the, the big brother on the scene, charismatic, great-looking guy, warrior, sharp, all that. He raped his sister Tamar, Absalom's full-blooded sister. Absalom, to get revenge on, for Tamar, went out and killed Amnon. Now the family is divided. Absalom seizes this opportunity to seize his side of the family, the group that was disgruntled with David, to form an alliance, to create a coup, and Absalom was now plotting to kill his own father. Ran his father. 1 Samuel chapter 15, I think it's around verse 27 or 34, tells us that David left Jerusalem, the king, and it was a world empire dominant throughout the world. He had money, he had wealth, he had it all, and he left Jerusalem with no shirt on his back, a covering over his head, nothing on his feet, and just a shawl around his waist, weeping into the night. You don't think David's messed up? And it is there that he writes Psalm 3. Look at verse 1. 
By the way, there's a lot of you, you're messed up. You're living in sin, you know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. There's a lot of you, your family's in disarray, and quite frankly, there's some of you in here that you're not sure if you're going to be together this time next year. There's some of you sitting in here that trouble is boiling between you and your children and if God or you or someone does not intervene and do something in a, in a way to change wounded hearts, I'm telling you, this time next year, life will be tremendously different in your home. There's some of you in here, financially, you're like David, you're just hanging on to the shirt on your back. Is Psalm 3 relating to anybody here? And there's some of you here that life just hasn't turned out to be as you expected it to be. David was anointed over his six older brothers as the king of Israel. And when Samuel anointed David as king, I am sure he did not picture this moment. I'm sure that when Absalom was born and he held that darling little boy in his head, he did not picture the night that his son would run him out of Jerusalem into the darkness, fleeing for his life. There's a lot of you. The life you're living right now is not how you expected it to be. Things are just all kind of messed up. Psalm 3. A song to sing in the morning to remind us that even though our life may get messed up, our day may get messed up, there is one who can straighten it all out in the end. Psalm 3 says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes and how many rise up against me. And man, everybody knew the story behind verse 1. David and Bathsheba killing Uriah and, and Absalom running David out of Jerusalem and overthrowing, trying to kill his father. Everybody knew the story. It set it up. David doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He just simply lays it out there. Many are saying, how many are against me? And many are saying, God will not deliver him. Many are saying, this is even too big for God to do. God can't fix this. God can't fix David. God can't set it right. There are some powers and forces in this world that are even too big for God to unravel, undo, or straighten out. There are people who have lost hope and have gone so far that God cannot restore hope to. That's what the world, that's what David's peers were saying when they said, God will not deliver him. I want you to understand something. No matter how messed up your messed up gets, God is still on the throne. No matter how messed up your messed up gets, there is still hope because Jesus Christ has all power in heaven and on earth. And the Holy Spirit of God can work in you and around you and through you if you'll allow him to. No matter how messed up, messed up gets, there is a power greater than yourself. It's not a force. It's not transcendental meditation. It is a personal God who wants to relate to you in a personal way to make a real transformational difference in your life so that your life is different because Jesus lives in your heart. No matter how messed up, messed up gets, there is a God who can and will deliver you.
that's where David took the shift. And the rest of the song is about the glory and the goodness of God. Look at what it says. It says, it, it says in verse 3 that you're my shield. Lord, you're my shield around me, oh Lord. It's an emphatic phrase. A warrior's shield was his primary source of protection. And, and it's part of the nature of God to protect those that he loves. He's your shield. The implication not only that God is my shield, that he knows what you're going through to protect you from it, and that he is all-powerful to protect you from it. When David said God is my shield, he's not saying God's way up in heaven and I'm way down here going through all of this mess and God has no concept, no idea of what I'm going through. Oh yes, he does. He is your shield. The Bible says God is my shield. The problem is we just don't let God protect us. Now how does God protect us today? Listen, you're not going to like it. I don't really care. I'm a little cranky today. He protects us through his word. You know what some of you are so messed up? It's because it has been many days, many weeks, many months, many years since you picked up this book and allowed the Lord to protect you through it. You say, well, I'm a pretty smart guy. Listen. You big ignoramus, you're not smarter than the devil. He's been around since eternity past. When God created him, he has seen it and heard it all. And he knows how to suck you in. You need a shield. He knows how to hit you on the blind side. Matter of fact, look at verse 3 again. The idea of the shield is that it's not just on one side, but Lord, you're the shield around me. I'm just on one side, Lord, all over you protect me. My mind, my heart, and, and we see that in Ephesians chapter 6 where we have the, the armor of God that we're fully protected. And how are we fully protected? Man, through knowing Christ, through his word, you got to read the book. And then David said, not only is he my shield, but you're, you bestow your glory on me. Many Bible scholars believe that David is actually in the desert. He's on the run. He's in the wilderness. He's hiding. And he says, Lord, you're my defense. And he said, Lord, you bestow your glory on me. Literally, it's the phrase glorious one. We sing that praise song sometimes around here. Glorious one, you know, light of the world, God's only son. That's the idea. Glorious one. It acknowledges God's rule and power over the kingdom. It has the idea of light. Now, you and I today are not the light bulbs. But we enjoy the blessing of the light. It shines on us. David was not the light. God is the light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He just, we just enjoy the blessings that shine and come from that and shine on us. David wasn't saying, hey, 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 look at me. He was saying in the Hebrew, glorious one, look at him. And let me... Be a partaker in your glory. Look at the next phrase in verse 3. You're my shield around me. You bestow your glory on me. You lift up my head. In our culture, you may picture a kid 
who, who's lost, you know, maybe a game they wanted to win. Or they did something bad, or, or maybe they're just a little whining, and you kind of bend down and you lift their chin up. And that's a beautiful American culture description of lifting up our heads, isn't it? it has nothing to do with what David's writing about. Step into the Hebrew culture. It was an expression of power. It was an expression of honor. It was a position of strength. You see, the lifting of the head is a Hebrew expression of conference, confidence that the Lord, because of God having all power, has the ability to raise up. In other words, that God is in control. That's what he was saying. I'm not on the throne. I'm out on the run. I, I've messed up, you know, Uriah's family, and I, I, I've just, you know, got this dysfunctional family and Tamar and Ammon and, and Absalom, and, and I got political coups going all over the place. Spiritually, we're on a downward spiral, but oh God, I'm turning back to you. Look at verse 4. David singing in deep pain and distress. Look at what he says. He says, to the Lord I cried out. And he answered me from his holy hill. The holy hill to a Jew was a, was a reference to the tabernacle and then to the temple that was built in Jerusalem. It's kind of like when we say church, you may think of Kirby. Or when we think of Kirby, you think of this place and you think of this building. In actuality, Kirby is, is not bricks and mortar and wood Kirby is the people sitting in the chairs this morning you understand the difference and so when when David was saying from his holy hill he was saying literally that's kind of where God is even though God is everywhere the Hebrew and the Jews understood that that was kind of the place and the power and, and the presence of God and David was basically saying even when I'm far away from God I can cry out to him and he hears me David said, when my soul is broken and destitute, when I'm living in immorality and sin, when my world is all messed up and falling apart, I can cry out to God and he answers me. Can you even fathom the depth of that saying? Matter of fact, we can't. So there's a musical term in your Bible. Do you see it? Selah, it's kind of that little italicized word over kind of to the right. You see that? You got it? Raise your hand if that's in your Bible, just so I know at least how many people brought a Bible today. Selah is a musical term. It's an interlude. It's kind of like when our praise band plays music and we don't sing. In the Hebrew oral tradition, when Selah was, was incorporated into the word, it, it simply meant interlude. Time to think. Time to reflect. David said, listen, I want you to think about this thing. The God who created light out of nothing, the God who created all that there is, the God who created the glory, the majesty of a sunrise and the beauty of a sunset, the God who created the miracle of life, the God who sits on the holy hill in Jerusalem, that God hears me when I cry and he answers me. Selah, think about it. All the blessings you have, God has given you. Selah, think about it. 
There was a day for a lot of us in this room where we gave our heart to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ through his shed blood on Calvary's cross wiped all our sins away and we got forgiveness of our sins, adopted into the kingdom of God, have an eternal home in heaven. Selah, think about it. All the blessings of God you have in your life You don't deserve and you've never earned a one of them. They come at the loving hand of your shield, your defense. The God who answers you. Think about it. David then kind of throws one other little thing in there. Because he just kind of really is describing God as a shield and the God who bestows his glory, the God who lifts up his head, the God who answers us, and he's also the God who sustains us. I just kind of want you to read with me in Psalm 3. He says, let's back up to verse 4. I cry aloud to the Lord. He answers me from his holy hill. Selah, verse 5. I lie down and I sleep. I wake up again. Because the Lord sustains me. What David was saying is, listen, I've settled this thing with my God and me. There's peace in my heart. I lay my head down, I don't worry. Matter of fact, look at what he says. I will not fear in verse 6, the tens of thousands that draw up against me on every side. David said, listen, when God is with me and God who hears my cry and God who bestows his glory on me and God who sustains me, I'm not going to fear one man any more than I'm going to fear 10,000 men who are completely encompassing me because God will protect me. He is my shield. He sustains me and I will trust him. Matter of fact, that's exactly where David takes us to. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all of my enemies on the jaw. I love the Hebrew. The Hebrew says literally, God, bust them in the chops. All right, that's the Trimble translation, but it actually means, Lord, break their teeth. Isn't that a cool way to pray? Honest? Y'all are messing with me. Don't you think God gets tired of hearing you say prayers that don't mean a stinking thing? I mean, what is the most authentic thing for David to pray right here? God, I trust you. I'm in your care. You're all powerful, so go break their teeth out. It's called an appreciatory prayer. And then notice what David says. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. I'm going to give you a Selah moment with your heads bowed and your eyes closed.